Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church today on this beautiful sunny morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our worship by singing our praises to God.
Father, we are in awe of what you've done for us in Christ. Through the cross, through the empty tomb, you have given us everything. We've come today to worship you, to acknowledge who you are and of your grace to us. We pray that we will be sensitive to your spirit in this time of worship. And we pray that that all that we do here would draw us closer to you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Good morning. I'm Zach Roan, and um, while some of you may know me, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the ministry that takes place right here. Um, for this mission moment, I'm going to share a bit about Royal Family Kids Camp. Um, it's a camp that uh, works with abused and neglected kids in Allegheny and Wyoming counties. Um, to give you a little bit of background, on abuse in the U.S., uh, we have about 3.6 million cases of abuse reported every year in the United States alone. And those are only the cases that go reported. Uh, they estimate that about one victim of abuse dies every six hours uh, due to abuse. Royal Family Kids Camp in 2012 served over 6,000 kids in 160 camps in 35 states and 11 countries. That's 80,000 kids since the first camp in 1985. Um, It's a pretty amazing number. Now, this local camp, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Uh, It's it's been uh, a neat neat, um, ministry opportunity that was begun with um, Dr. John Van Wicklin. Um, And over the, the past 20 years, we've helped nearly 300 kids, and we hope their families... Um, that they go back to, as well as the children that these children will eventually have. Um, So what does camp look like? Well, we try to give these kids positive memories. That's the mission of the camp. And to give these kids positive memories, we we give them a birthday party, because many of these kids never have one. So we have what's called every kid's birthday party. We have a carnival day where we bring, bring in carnival rides. And they ride, they get motorcycle rides. And um, we, we give them uh, the opportunity to have a camp uh, uncle. We, they have coaches. They have a camp grandfather um, and grandmother. They have tea parties, and they go fishing, and they get on speedboat rides. We give them memories to, that they can look back on and smile about and, and experience um, the joy of Christ as we share um, our love with them. Um, now, our purpose is to mobilize the faith community. To make a difference. Um, and, and if you've had a chance, that about a year ago, uh, our, our camp in this area sponsored uh, the showing of the camp movie um, at, at the Houghton Chapel. 
Um, if you didn't get a chance to see it then, you can look up the movie Camp on Netflix. Um, it's also available there. Uh, it gives you a, a glimpse into the, the, at least the sentiments of, of what camp is like. Um, it's, it's worth checking out. Now, our local camp, we have 50 to 52 children every year. Um, it, it takes 80 vo- adult volunteers consisting of about 50 staff members and 32 counselors. Um, that's 130 people that are there during the week. And every single one of them needs prayer. Um, is what we, we like to do for that week is at the beginning of the week, each, each, each camper, each staff member, each counselor gets a, a note written to them from a prayer partner. Um, and the, the, the prayer partner uh, just writes a, it can be two sentences long, uh, four or five sentences long. We're not looking for anything big, especially when a lot of these are, are written to uh, uh, five to eight-year-old children. Um, but it, it's, it's a very simple responsibility that you, you, you email or, or write this letter, uh, this note to, to the camper or the staff member, and uh, we'll take care of distributing that to them. And then the only other responsibility that we ask for our prayer partners is that you pray for them during the week. This is, this is the mission moment, and this is your, your mission opportunity. Um, all I'm, I'm going to ask that, that you do is at the end of the service, if you're at all interested, uh, we'd love to have you sign up. I'll be in the back of the, the sanctuary, and, and you can sign up on the, on the sheet, and we'll contact you soon uh, with a name of uh, the person that will be praying for and um, we'll, we'll give you instructions on, on the note that you need to write, and, um, and, and that's about it. So thank you very much. Zach, uh, Cindy and I have been prayer partners for many years, and it's a very rewarding opportunity to be a part of something bigger than us. And uh, you may not be able to go to camp and to work that week, but, wow, prayers are so important. So I encourage you to stop on your way out of the service today and talk to Zach and sign up to be a prayer partner in this very important ministry. And we've seen so many good things happen in children's lives over the years. Uh, there are, uh, we also have another opportunity for prayer. Uh, we are uh, in the annual cycle of praying for our graduates. And uh, we have a prayer vigil that starts tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. And it concludes Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock. 36 hours of continual prayer for our graduates, college and high school. We have a board in the prayer room with the names of all of the graduates on it. And uh, we want to encourage you to sign up for an hour, go to the prayer room, and pray for them. And there may be other things that you want to pray about as you're there. But our, our primary focus is praying for graduates. So if you are a graduate, you might want to be in there and pray for yourself and others. If you're not, pray for those who are. And it's a great ministry, a great opportunity to share in the lives of the young people that God has given us an opportunity to connect with and nurture through the years. You can sign up in the back foyer right after the service or online at any time through the church website. There are a number of other things in the bulletin, and actually one of them that was omitted this week, as I mentioned last week, in the fall we're going to be doing a sermon series on your questions. So you think of it this way, I'd like to hear a sermon about... And you write your question down. You can write on anything you want. It might be crazy. You might not hear a sermon about it, but you can write it down. Um, But we're looking to gather as many questions as we can 
And uh, so there are some uh, uh, three by five cards in front of you in the pew rack, colored, uh, different colors. Just grab one of those out, write your question on it. You can put it in the offering plate if you're ready. If not, there's a basket in the back for you. Or you just, you can email it to me or to anyone at the church office and we'll get that in the pile. We got about uh, 18 or 20 of them last week, which is great, but we'd like to have more as we uh, work through these. So please give us your questions and uh, we want to... Uh, shape the uh, fall series around those. We're also at the point of electing our leaders and their ballots posted around. There's also a a booklet in the back with pictures of everyone who's on the ballot and some information about them. Please take one of those as you go. Be in prayer about the elections and the the division meeting on May 18th. Uh, We also have an insert in your bulletin about some opportunities for ministry. Uh, One of them is working with children and uh, we, we have such a responsibility from God to teach our children, to help them be nurtured in the faith. And I know some of you are getting ready to leave for the summer, so it wouldn't apply to you. But if you're around this summer, we could use your help in Sunday school and in children's church. And if you would be willing to help with either of those ministries or both, you can uh, sign up. And there's information here about who to contact to uh, be a part of those ministries. Uh, there are also, uh, please note also the worship schedule changes next week. Worship is at 8.30 and 11. We do not have a 9.40 service for the rest of the summer. So please note that at the bottom of the bulletin, it gives you the schedule for the rest of the summer, 8.30 and 11, beginning next week. This is time of year, as I mentioned, we're having the privilege of praying for all of our graduates. And in a few weeks, we will spend some time praying for our high school graduates. But today, we want to specifically take a moment to pray for our college graduates. And I know there are some in this service today and I'm going to ask you to, uh, to stand where you are. And then I'm going to ask people around them to uh, gather around each of them. And we're just going to offer a brief prayer for you. So if you're, a college, if you're graduating from college uh, this spring, please stand. And then I'm going to ask people around you to uh, lay hands on you for us to pray for you. I know there's some here. I saw you. There we go. Okay, there's a few in the balcony, and um, so if those of you who are around them, gather around and come lay hands on them, or if you need to walk up a little ways to, to get to them. Father, thank you for each one of these graduates standing before us today. You love them with an everlasting love. You are passionate about each one of them. And I pray that they will know the depths of your love and grace for them. In the years that they have been here, They have changed, they have developed, they've grown, and you've worked in each of their lives, and we thank you. As they prepare to leave here to go to the next chapter of their lives, I'm sure there is both excitement and anxiety. I pray that you would would help them to know your presence in a tangible way. 
Help them to know your mercy upon their lives. Lead them, guide them. Keep them close to you. Help them in the decisions that they make, in their relationships. Whatever they do in the next stage of life, may they sense you with them every step of the way. I pray, Father, that you will pour your spirit out upon them, that they will bear witness to you wherever they go and wherever they may be and whatever they may do. Father, thank you for each one. And we pray your anointing upon their lives this day and in the days to come. And we ask all of this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We have opportunity to give back to God out of the many ways in which he's blessed us. So we're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in giving our tithes and offerings.
the great I am invites us to come to him with our prayers. If you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. And if not, please be seated. Father, we praise you for being God Almighty. There is none beside you. You have conquered all that has come against you and us. And we worship you today. Father, we hear your call to come and to pray, and so we do just that in this moment. We think about those among us who are grieving. And we ask that you would comfort them. The grief might be recent. It might be a ways ago. But it is grief nonetheless. And we pray for your healing, comforting presence. Father, we pray for all who are struggling with things to come to us in illness and pain. And we pray especially today for Bev and Edna and for Linda and Micah, for Bill, for Crystal and Emily and others who are on our minds today. We ask for your healing grace in each of them. We pray that you would continue to work in our relationships, continue to work in the struggles of our jobs, in our homes, our future, our lives. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for this world. Thank you for those who have given of themselves, heard your call, and are ministering in a place different than might be home or comfort. Pray for Wes and Dana Brown and ask for your grace upon them. Help them as they raise support, as they travel, protect them. And may your mercy be at work in their lives as they go to minister in Kenya. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the world who are persecuted in ways that we really can't comprehend. Think about these young girls who were kidnapped in Nigeria. And it breaks our hearts, the fear and anxiety that they must be feeling. And we pray that you will protect them. We pray that you will work for their release. We pray that you will defeat the evil one in this circumstance. We pray that you would comfort their parents and family and friends. And Father, in the midst of this this terrible situation, we pray that you would bring hope. Do a miracle. Father, thank you so much for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your love that reached out to us 
as Christ became one of us. Thank you for your love that has forgiven us as Christ went to the cross. Thank you for your love that sets us free to new life through the resurrection. And thank you for your love as Christ has promised to return. It is because of Christ that we offer our prayers in confidence and joy knowing that you hear us, knowing that you are at work. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please stand as we sing together.
How do you feel when some sin hits you like a truck and leaves you scarred and bleeding in the road of your life? How do you feel when you know what's right and you do what's wrong? Maybe a bigger question is how does God feel? What is God's response to us when, when we know what is right and we do what is wrong? When we give in to some of the temptations that come to us and we give in maybe again and again and again. What's, what's God's response to us? Now, you may be sitting here thinking, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. But if you're like me, you have thought about it. You You've pondered, you've questioned, you've wondered, you may have worried, you've struggled. Because 
We live in a sinful world, and none of us are perfect. And when you read the Bible, God seems to have pretty high expectations. And this isn't, these aren't just theoretical questions, they're real questions. They're life and death kinds of questions. And they're questions that, when you read the scripture, you see them addressed in a variety of ways. Including this first chapter of Peter's epistle. When I read the scriptures, one of the things that that I try to do is to, to think about, why did this author write these words to these people at this time? Well, what was his point for that? And you want to say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told him to write it. And that's true. We believe that. But why would the Holy Spirit inspire the, the authors to write these particular words to this particular group of people at this particular time? Because when you think about it, of all the things that the Holy Spirit could prompt people to write, we really have a pretty small sample So why these people? Why this place? And as I was thinking about that and pondering this first chapter of Peter's letter, it it strikes me that he's writing to people, he says in chapter, in verse 1, he's writing to people, Christians who are scattered around the world, and more than likely they're scattered because they're being persecuted. That's why the church scattered in the early days. And he writes to them because they're going through some tough things. And in verse 6, he references the fact that they are going through trials. And, the, and this persecution, this opposition is pushing in upon them. And more than likely, as they face this persecution, they're asking themselves, am, am I going to make it? God, where are you? And they're getting discouraged and frustrated. And I suspect some of them, because they're human beings like us, are saying maybe it's not worth it. And the temptation is to give in. To say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And Peter's response to them is not to chastise them. He doesn't say to them, look folks, buck up. Deal with it. Get over it. He encourages them. And the place he takes them is the empty tomb. He brings them back to the resurrection. If you look at verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. Scottish preacher of the 20th century, James Stewart, said that uh, the resurrection is at the heart of every Christian sermon that has ever been preached. It's at the heart of everything in the scriptures that has ever been written. It doesn't matter if you are reading the Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters of Paul or Peter or John or the Revelation. Every bit of it is motivated by the resurrection. Every every word makes sense only because of the resurrection. And Peter brings us back to the resurrection. And in this resurrection, we have, he says, new birth and living hope. We have been born again. We've been set free. We've been forgiven. And now we also have hope. If you think about hope, sometimes when we use the word hope, it means, you know, we cross our fingers and say, oh, I hope this happens. You watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday. There were a whole lot of people who were hoping that their horse won. And they were hoping with a lot of money that their horse won. 
That's not what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about wishful thinking. This is, he's talking about certainty. He's saying this is, we are confident. Everything we believe, everything that, it, that, that matters to us, everything that it means to be a Christian is about the hope that is ours because Christ, who is dead, is alive. He has defeated every enemy. He's defeated every foe. He has conquered our greatest enemy, death. And because of that, nothing is too great for him. And that is our assurance and our surety and our hope. And it ought to change the way we live. But hope is not just about the present. Hope is always something we feel in the present about what we know about the future. And so he says, he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to talk about this inheritance that is ours in which the hope is found. And he says uh, that it's through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Through the power, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. He says this hope that we have, this living hope, this thing that we are sure of, certain of, it's our inheritance in Christ. We are, in a sense, beneficiaries of the will. We've been given an inheritance. And while we will experience the fullness of it one day, we get glimpses of it now. But we get glimpses of it now because we know that one day all of it will be true. And he says this inheritance is certain. It is sure. He uses words, he uses here words, negative words to talk about what it's not so he can, we can understand what it is. He says it's never going to perish, it's never going to fade, never going to spoil. And of course we understand that because we deal with perish, things perishing and spoiling and fading all the time. If you leave something that's supposed to be in your refrigerator out on the counter for a few days, you probably don't want to eat it. It will spoil and we all have the experience of throwing out things. I suspect those of you who are cleaning out your dorm room are finding there may be some spoiled things in there. And that's what that smell was. And things fade. Our memories fade. I remember when our, when our boys were, were little and they do something, we would say, oh, that is so cool, so cute. We'll never forget that. We forgot it. Unless you get a picture or you have a movie film or we talk about it all the time. You forget. Things fade. The value of things fades. I mean, our electronics, we're continually replacing them. You can go to the store and you buy something brand new and the minute you carry it out of the store, it's already old. And things perish. We all know how quickly things can go up in smoke. And Peter says, our inheritance, nothing like that. Whatever comes against it, whatever discouragement you may feel, whatever the power of the evil one, our inheritance is sure and certain. You can bank on it. And to those of us who grew up in the, in the Wesleyan tradition, as followers of, of the teachings of John Wesley, we need to hear that word. Because sometimes in our attempts to, 
to describe our theological perspective and to make sure that our theological perspective wasn't somebody else's theological perspective, we have taken that to the place where this surety that is ours in Christ, this certainty, this security that's ours in Christ becomes insecurity. And we live in fear and anxiety and worry Because what if we commit a sin that God won't forgive? What if we aren't exactly where we should be and Christ returns? How far can we go with God? As a child, I grew up in this kind of environment. and, And I lived in so much anxiety about my relationship with Christ and my eternal destiny. You know, if I, if I lied to my parents or if I, I did something to my sisters, hopefully they felt the same way about the things they were doing to me, but I don't know about that. But, or if I, you know, had, you know, thoughts that I shouldn't have. I lived in this anxiety and fear that I was going to go to hell. And my dad, who grew up in an even stricter environment than, than that, you know, talks about how You know, if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time when Jesus returned, you were dead, you were out, you were done. And I think that's a lie of the evil one. I think God has more for us. I I think we're selling God short. I think that it's saying to, I mean, you think about your, think about your relationships, the people you love, the people who are closest to you, parents, children, spouse, siblings, your best friends, People you dearly love, unfortunately, we hurt each other. We do things to, to, to bring pain to each other. But if we love people, we're quick to forgive. They come to say, I'm so sorry, we forgive them. Sometimes we forgive even if they don't give us the apology we're looking for because we love them. And we think God would do any less. Sometimes we paint a picture of God as as being less patient, less loving, less compassionate than we are. And yet we read the scriptures and we talk about anything good. It keeps telling us whatever you can think of of good, God is infinitely more good. God is more loving, more patient, more forgiving, more compassionate. And instead of living in anxiety and fear, we ought to live in a sense of the security that is ours in Christ. But Peter also talks about our responsibility in this inheritance. He says, you, you really, there is a sense in which we need to want the inheritance that Christ has promised us. He says in verse 7 about these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. He talks in verse 9 about receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And there is something in this this promise, in this inheritance that connects us with, with a desire, a yearning. Maybe the word is passion for Christ. And this too is a part of our inheritance as we are connected to the risen Christ. If you think about relationships, is it really a relationship if only one person is invested in it? 
We've all had experiences, either ourselves or maybe we watch other people where we have a crush on someone and they don't reciprocate. It's not really a relationship. He's talking here about having a passion for Christ. He says in verse 8 that you don't see him, but you love him. You don't see him, but you believe in him. We think about passion, we think about words like earnestness, seriousness, investing ourselves, giving ourselves, being absorbed in something. When I was a child, I had a passion about baseball. I loved baseball. I would play baseball all day if I could. The first thought in my morning waking up is, I hope we can get a game together today. And I would play till it was dark and you couldn't see the ball anymore. And I dreamed about playing baseball. And the only reason we'd come home, we'd stop playing, is that we had to eat. And I dreaded the days when it rained, because even then we'd still try to get together a few people. And we invented games to play with five or six people, because we'd have enough. It was, it was just a passion of, of my life as a child. And, and Peter in the scriptures is telling us, followers of Jesus have a passion for Jesus. It absorbs us. It takes over us. Every, our thoughts, our desires, our yearnings are about Jesus. And we have a role to play in this. And the inheritance has been promised us. The inheritance is sure. It's secure. But we will only know it if we want it. It's about our faith persevering to the end, Peter says. Now, it may seem like we're talking about two different, totally opposite things. And if you've been around the church for a little while, you know that this is one of those hot-button theological topics that has led not only to disagreements, but hot disagreements. And a whole lot of bad stuff as people talked about it. And what, I'm, what I, th- I think we have to come to the place of where we realize that the answer is not either or, it's both and. Because both things are true. Scripture is clear about that. And somehow we have to come to the place of living in the tension of the security that is ours in Christ and the calling on us to be passionate about Christ. And that's what makes us live in the spirit of Christ. If you follow college basketball, you know that one of the things that is being debated over and over right now is this, they call it the one and done rule. Where the, the, the next, the professional basketball leagues, it says you can't enter the professional leagues until you've been out of high school one year. And so there are a number of players who go to college just for one year. They play one year with no intent of staying, and then they go to the NBA, and, and, uh, or they try to. And it's this one and done rule, and you'll find a lot of people who are against it. And as someone was talking to me after the service today, something they said triggered in my mind that, the, in a sense, we are dealing with two one-and-done mindsets that are both wrong. On the one hand, you have, you have people who believe that it's one-and-done in terms of, I, I pray a prayer to Jesus, and then I'm done. doesn't matter what I do with my life. And on the other side of it, you have people who, who say, if I commit one sin, I'm done because Christ is going to give up on me. And both are wrong. And it doesn't mean that, it, that the doctrines are necessarily going to go that direction, but when we become more enamored with protecting our theological perspective, 
than with being passionate about Christ, we are, we are leading ourselves, we're going down paths of destruction. Because the call of Christ is not you, make, you say a prayer and then it doesn't make any difference. He's calling us to a life of discipleship. He's calling us to a life of surrender and sacrifice and passion. And on the other side, he's not saying to us, you know what, you better watch yourself because if you commit one sin, you're done. God is so much more forgiving than that. God recognizes none of us are going to be perfect. We're all going to struggle. And the answer is is not to live in anxiety and fear like so often happens. The answer is to live in the passion of the tension. Because in the passion is joy. Three times in this brief section, Peter talks about joy. He's writing to people who are suffering, persecuted. And what does he say? Praise be to God. And I know you're suffering a little bit, but it's going to turn around because God has given you the spirit of joy. And you should be rejoicing. Why? Because Christ is risen and you are in relationship with him. And he's given you a living hope now and then. And it changes everything. You live in joy. And God's design for us is joy. As Dallas Willard used to say, there's no greater being in the, no being in the world is more joyful and more concerned about joy than God. And so is Jesus. That's why people flock to Jesus. That's why little children ran to Jesus. Little children know, they see through people. They don't run to people who are, who are mean and nasty. They run to people who are joyful. And they flock to Jesus. And Jesus wants our lives to be full of joy. And where does the joy come from? It comes from Christ. It doesn't come from a theological perspective. It comes from Christ. And the joy that God wants for us is through Christ. And what Peter is saying is someday you're going to experience the fullness of all the joy of God But until that day, if you have a passion for Christ, then that inheritance is going to seep into your life now. And you're going to get glimpses of that. And you're going to have joy because of Christ. Because of his promises. Because of his presence in your heart. Because of your openness and your passion to him and for him. And struggling to, to kind of put this into an image, years ago I read this, this, about this metaphor for this dynamic that I find very helpful. I find help for myself. And as I've talked with people about it through the years, I found it to be helpful for them. And it's, it goes, it's like this. I don't remember who said it or where I got it from, but it's stuck in my mind for probably 25 years. So if you if you imagine... That the Christian life is like riding in a pickup truck. And Jesus is driving the pickup truck. I don't know what that does for your theology, but in this case, Jesus is driving the pickup truck. And all the Christians are riding in the back of the pickup truck. And some people believe that the tailgate is down and it's not that hard to fall out. And other people believe the tailgate is up and it's virtually impossible to fall out. 
But here's the dynamic we need to know. The object is not to see how close to the back of the truck we can live and hang on. The object is to live as close to the cab as possible because that's where Jesus is. And Jesus is the source of life and joy and grace and hope. And to have this passion for Jesus. And when our desire and our passion is to be as close to Jesus as we possibly can, everything else just sort of takes care of itself. I read, I don't know, a number of years ago, that when, when the translators were in Alaska and were originally translating the scriptures, they, there were words that they found difficult to translate into the, into the native language of the people. And that's true of anybody who's tried to translate something. It doesn't matter if you're translating the Hebrew and Greek of the scriptures into English or any other language or English to German or Dutch or whatever. There are always words that you can't, that aren't, they, don't, they don't cross. And they, one of the things that they found, one of the words they found that was not in their vocabulary was the word joy. And so they wrestled trying to figure out how do they translate the word joy in the scriptures? How, how, do, they, how do they put that into words so that people understand it? And it came to them that the most joyous moment of the day for the people they were working with was when the sled dogs came up to the house for supper. They were excited. They were ready to eat. They'd been out running around all day. The children in the house were excited because they loved the dogs. And when it was time for dinner for these animals, the dogs would come running and the children would come running and they would play with each other and jump on each other and hug each other. And and it it was just one of the most joyous, fun moments of the whole day. And so when they translated the scriptures and they came to the passage about Jesus and his disciples, and you put it back into English, it came out like this. When the disciples saw Jesus, they wagged their tails. That's what happens when you have a passion for Christ. When you want to ride near the cab. When you have understood the promise that God has for us and are living in that passion. That's what God wants for us. That's God's desire for us. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the promise you have given us that is sure and certain and can never be overcome. And thank you for calling us to be participants in our walk with you. Fill us with passion for Christ. Overwhelm us with the joy of the resurrected Christ. Pray this in his glorious 
glorious name. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on. the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.